According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again in Philippians chapter 1. We will uh, touch base with the verses we just completed, taking us down uh, verses 12 through 18, or 12 through 18a. We've only had one rejoicing. We'll have 18b in the second rejoicing uh, coming up. In any event, before we do move on to uh, 19 through 30, or 18b through 30, the final portion of the chapter, uh, I do want to do a topical study, a doctrinal study on calls to the ministry. And uh, it's one that I think will be edifying and, and a blessing as so many uh, folks are considering the various calls and considering ministry fields that they're engaged in or thinking about being engaged in at some point. And uh, we've had the application here already that uh, we spoke about with the, uh, uh, the rightly motivated believers and the wrongly motivated believers. And they were all goaded, they were all uh, uh, persuaded and emboldened to pursue ministry. They all started preaching Christ. Uh, but some were doing it for the right reasons and some were doing it for the wrong reasons. And we want to uh, kind of explore that a little bit deeper and, and put it in the context of ministry pursuits as uh, we have taught in other studies as well. So this will reinforce some other things we've done and this will hopefully pave the way for some future things that uh, we're about to get to as well, not only in chapter 1 but in chapter 2 and following. Because in chapter 2 we've got the great humility mandate and we've got the example of, of Timothy and how Timothy is the great illustration of what we're going to see here, how he uh, responded to the call of ministry, and he did so with the humility required in order to be so placed. And uh, so that that's going to become clear as well. All right. Before we do get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father to manifest His faithfulness in uh, leading us in the truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for your truth. We thank you for your faithfulness. And Father, we are eager to feast upon your word. I pray, Father, that you would open the eyes of our understanding, give us the ears to hear. Father, implant this truth within our heart. Father, might it uh, dwell richly within us, spring forth and bear fruit. Uh, Father, all of this for the glory of your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so uh, looking at these verses here, uh, really keying in on verse 14, most of the brethren, not all, there will always be a few, there's always going to be somebody that uh, no matter how they're persuaded, no matter how they're emboldened, no matter how they're goaded, no matter what, uh, they're just not going to get uh, off the pew and, and do anything about their Christian faith. But it does say here, most of the brethren persuaded by the Lord because of my imprisonment. And we have a trigger there, there's an event, there's an episode in the life of this local church, in the life of the, the believers here in this location. And that event became the trigger. That event became the watershed moment, if you will, that then sparked this great entrance, this great call to ministry. So most of the brethren persuaded by the Lord because of my imprisonment have been emboldened, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. And so they engaged in the ministry of preaching Christ, of proclaiming Christ. 
And as we've been looking at it, I call them the good guys or the bad guys, or I quit doing that. I call them the rightly motivated believers and the wrongly motivated believers. They are all engaged in ministry. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. And that is just horrible. And I can't imagine worse motivations, right? But yet there it is. And Paul says, hey, at the end of the day, they're preaching Christ. And so in that, I rejoice. And we've been looking at that and studied that uh, already. So I want to kind of use this as an introduction to this idea of ministry that a lot of people will be called to ministry and a lot of people are going to get excited. A lot of people are going to get um, almost... uh, like a, like a pep rally. They're going to get emotional. They're going to get, they're going to get passionate about what they're doing. They're going, to be, uh, they're going to have a zeal about what they're doing, especially if they've never done anything like this before. There can really be a, a, a thrill. There can be a charge to, hey, I'm, I'm serving the Lord. I'm preaching. I'm, I'm in the ministry or whatever it might be. And we want to have just, we don't want to dampen the zeal. We don't want to throw a wet blanket over the enthusiasm. However, we do want to make sure that the zeal is in accordance with knowledge. We want to make sure that the, the motivations are accurate, that they're correct, that they're appropriately led by Jesus Christ in this capacity. So that's what we're going to see here in, uh, in this. Now, so to introduce it, I'm just going to use Philippians 1. I might use other passages in, in other contexts, but for this study we'll use uh, Philippians 1 because that's what is launching this, all right? We've, used, we've had other studies that came out of 1 Corinthians. We've had other studies of ministry that came out of the Life of Christ series, for example. And I'm going to try to really blend a lot of those things. I did a lot of cut and paste and stole some notes from earlier studies and, and kind of blended this all together where um, uh, hopefully it'll be very edifying for us here today. But just three things I want to say with respect to the introduction. First of all, uh, believers enter the ministry for right reasons and wrong reasons. All right, and this passage makes that clear. Other passages make it clear. Why did uh, you know Peter and Andrew? Why, we know why they entered the ministry. Uh, James and John. We know why they entered the ministry. And Matthew, the tax collector. We know why they entered the ministry. But why did Judas Iscariot uh, enter the ministry? Why did he get on board with with Jesus and and with the other disciples there? And and I volunteered to be the treasurer. And I mean, he had, uh, we know he was a thief, we know. So um, we have some clues there as to maybe what uh, would have been motivating to him. Uh, but for right reasons and wrong reasons, and here, uh, as we've just read, are uh, some of those wrong reasons. Envy and strife are wrong reasons. Uh, but goodwill is a good reason. Uh, uh, doing it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. Those are good reasons. And so uh, as we studied it, goodwill, remember, is the, is the good pleasure of God the Father. Uh, that you can't think of a better reason to enter into the ministry than the Father's good pleasure. <laughs> All right? So if you're under teaching and you're starting to understand the Father's good pleasure, then uh, that may be a, a, a motivation. That might be something that then works in your thinking that drives you to the idea that, that you should be pursuing these things. Uh, love, another motivation, or knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. Understanding the Father's appointments, understanding what Jesus Christ does as the head of the church when he assigns different believers different tasks. And so um, you may see those tasks and you may see uh, things that happen and, and God uses that, the, the things going on. For these believers it was Paul going to jail. And that just, just started prompting believers to get busy. All right. For us, it could be something else. It might be watching Dan and Stephanie move off to Corpus Christi. 
and and something like that might spark something or or it might be um um i don't know it might, might be uh, uh uh mike snyder going to heaven uh, it might be who knows it could be just an event and you look at that and you think and you go hmm wow um maybe i should be pursuing something maybe i should you know it won't be corpus christi but what will it be all right uh, Bob and Elvira head off to Washington, or other believers are headed different places, and you start considering, well, Lord, where's my open door? <laughs> Why am I just sitting here? And and so you keep searching the scriptures, and 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 you've yet to find bump on a log as a, as a gift or a ministry or as an effect in uh, in any any New Testament capacity. So. Right reasons and wrong reasons. Uh, verse 17, selfish ambition. Okay, wrong reason. <laughs> selfish ambition. If you're looking to build an empire, if you're looking to, to create some kind of a thing, no, that's, that's not why we're here. All right? And, and plenty of examples there that have, of ministers that, uh, that are doing just that. All right? Um, and they know who they are, and the Lord knows who they are, and I don't have to name names, but, uh, but there they are. And uh, rather than from pure motives, right reasons, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment, wrong reasons, okay? If you're getting into the ministry to show somebody, <laughs> you know, I'll give them, I'll show them, okay? Uh, wait a minute, what, what are you showing them? And uh, uh, it's got to be right reasons and uh, serving the Lord. So, uh, but, but here's the key, okay? Three things under this. First of all, they are persuaded by Christ and they are emboldened by Christ. Both groups. Even the wrongly motivated people. Everybody involved here was persuaded with a verb patho. The rightly motivated crowd, the, right, the wrongly motivated crowd, all of them are the objects of the verb patho. Christ was persuading them. Likewise, emboldened. They were all emboldened, even the wrong ones. So they were persuaded, they were emboldened, but they retained their own motivations. They retained their own motivations. All right? And that, I think that's huge. I think that's, it's actually um, remarkable. And it's something we ought to stop and consider and pray through and evaluate. We might search for other passages of Scripture in this regard um, because I think we can see it again and again in other ministry callings. They retain their own motivations. In other words, God doesn't stamp out the wrong motivations and force you to think the way He thinks. He demonstrates when your thinking is wrong. He demonstrates when your motivation is not biblical. And there will be discipline for wrong motivations and there will be consequences for wrong actions that, uh, that poor motivations uh, uh, produce. But nevertheless, He does not sovereignly rewrite what you're thinking or why you're thinking it. And I think that's interesting. Particularly when he calls people to do different things. When he calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, what were his motivations? Uh, he was not at all happy about going. And when he finally got there, he was not at all happy about being there. And after he'd seen great revival, he was even less happy about all that. All right. He never once did he, did he coerce Jonah's attitude. And even when he, obviously, I love Jonah. It's a great illustration of the, the overruling will of God. Okay. But even the overruling will of God does not coerce thinking. All right? 
And so understand that they retain their own motivations. You and I are going to maintain our own motivations. And so we want our motivations, we do want them to change, we do want them to be adjusted, but we want the the Word of God to do that as we learn, as we grow, as as we humbly accept the truth of what God's Word says. In, uh, in different ways. So uh, they retain their own motivations, and that's, that's what we deal with. So uh, uh, no extra charge for the Jonah material, but if you want to use that, use it. That's uh, the directive will of God, go to Nineveh. The permissive will of God is when he was allowed to flee to Tarshish. The overruling will of God has sent the storm and sent the fish and, and uh, vomited them up on the beach. Okay? But even that, even the overruling will of God which God will step in and overrule and limit, mitigate the damage, right? Limit the consequences. Uh, he might hinder what you're trying to do in permissive will. Uh, you still want to do it, so you're still guilty of the sin. But, he's, but when he overrules, notice he's not coercing the volition. Jonah is still standing on the beach and told, go to Nineveh. <laughs> All right? And at a certain point, uh, you might be standing on a beach covered in fish vomit, but at a certain point, you decide that you're going to do what God tells you to do. All right. So, uh, is that coercion? Is God forcing you to do that, or you just finally had enough and said, "I, I don't know what the next step is, but this is this is this is bad enough." <laughs> All right. I can't imagine what the next step is. It's going to be worse than this one, or sin unto death, or whatever it might be. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to respond now. I'm going to do what God wants me to do now. So that's the uh, overruling will of God. So they're persuaded by Christ, they're emboldened by Christ, yet they retain their own motivations. And that's, uh, that's, that's huge. I think that's also an illustration of, of how the Bible was written, how God worked through the authors of Scripture. Because the various authors of Scripture were moved by the Holy Spirit, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, they were inspired to write what they wrote, and yet every author of Scripture retained their own motivations, their own personalities, their own writing styles, their own vocabulary, their own sense of humor, their own sarcasm, their own everything. All right? And, uh, and, and so I think that's the excellent pattern for us. Not only this passage, but canonicity itself, the inspiration of Scripture itself, how we pursue the ministry, how we are the individuals God has crafted us to be, and we're not trying to become clones of, of whoever. We're not trying to become somebody else that we're not. I'm not trying to be a Ralph Braun or a R.B. Theme or anything else, or a Ken Jensen or a John Eichmann. All right? Because we retain ourselves, our personalities, our, our motivations, our, our hopes and fears and weaknesses and quirks and everything else. All right. So uh, again, this is all just introduction, and, and I hope that it serves to encourage each one of us that if, if, um, if, if you're starting to hear a call, that you're not fearful of it, or that you're not resisting it, or... Um, you're not uh, terrified that it means you have to become somebody else. That if you, if you obey that call, then you would have to become more like X, Y, Z. Or, or, or run for the hills and say, oh no, I could never, I could never be RB theme. I could never be uh, Pastor Bob. I could never be whoever, right? And because I can't be that person, then God can never use me and I'm, I might as well just not go into the ministry, Okay. So flush that. <laughs> Get rid of that. Because God is shaping you through the Word of God to who you are now and who you're going to be in the ministry. 
And that's, uh, I think that's, that's huge. All right. Clearly, um, you know unbelievers enter the ministry? <laughs> unbelievers enter the ministry? And uh, when unbelievers enter the ministry, it's always the wrong reason. They can't have the right reason for being in the ministry. And, uh, and I love Matthew uh, 7. I use this a lot for different contexts. But this is a crowd that says, Lord, Lord, and they expect to go to heaven even though they've been in hell all this time. Um, surely that's some kind of a mistake. And when you read this here in Matthew 7, verses 15 through 23, um, just consider that these are people who in their physical life, in their mortality on this earth, were some of the busiest ministers you've ever met. They were serving, they were busy, they were doing this and that. They had a long laundry list of stuff they'd done for Jesus. All right, none of them were saved. And that, I tell you, that just just sinks in, doesn't it? So in verse 15, Matthew 7, and... uh, I guess while we're here I can grab 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. So just as a ratio and as a proportion, there's the broad gate, there's the hoi polloi, the many are going that way, and then there's the straight and narrow. And there's very few compared to the many that, uh, that are going that other way. Verse 14, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So however many is many and however few is few, it presents for us the the ratio, the the proportion of uh, 7 billion people on the planet today. How many are regenerate? All right. I have no idea, but I believe it's few compared to the many. All right. And even within the few, how many are true disciples? Abiding in the Word of God and glorifying Jesus Christ. I think that's also few, within the few. But be that as it may. And so this is the uh, way of life. And this is for born-again believers to be living in the Word of God, to be glorifying Jesus Christ in this capacity. So verse 15 says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. All right, So they are not sheep. If they were born again, they would be sheep. And because they're not sheep, they have to dress up as sheep. <laughs> okay, they're 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 wolves, and um, but they're uh, they're disguised as sheep. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. Now this is just the nature of what it is. There's not a you know the it, the, the, the tree produces what it's designed to produce. Not once does an apple tree ever get it and just to have a bad day one day and say, you know what, I'm sick of these apples. I'm going to just on a whim produce a banana, okay? An apple tree would never do that, could never do that. It would never, you know, the concept is just alien. Likewise, no unbeliever, no unregenerate human being, as nice as they are, as friendly as they are, you know, dear whoever, Aunt Sadie, the, the sweet lady with the apple pie, um, as nice as she is, if she is not a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, then she has no fruit. No fruit for the glory of Jesus Christ that would be viewed as uh, gold, silver, and precious stones for all eternity. Uh, the fruit that she bears is bad fruit, as we see there. All right, so good trees bear good fruit, bad trees bear bad fruit. 
A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. All right. And so this is what the Lord's teaching. Then verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So there are people that name the name of the Lord, but they're not saved. They name the name, but they're not placing their faith in Christ for eternal life. Lord, Lord, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What's the will of my Father? That you believe in Jesus Christ. Okay. Many will say to me on that day, many, it's like the hoi polloi from the broad gate. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not? Now look at this. This is a catalog of busy people in the ministry. Did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons. Unbelievers casting out demons. How about that? And in your name perform many miracles. Works of divine power or some kind of power. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. There's no personal relationship. Not now, not ever. I have never known you. Okay? And that, that also is huge. I think that also helps us to sort through some of the earlier conundrums of these verses. Some believers get lost in the idea that, um, well, what do you do with carnality? What do you do with reversionism? What do you do with a, a believer who is saved but then goes through a season of their life where they are walking in darkness? Is that not bad fruit? Not according to the, the metaphor. Okay? Sometimes we think of it as bad fruit when they're in carnality, but that's um, not in keeping with this metaphor. Um, I never knew you. That's the point. Never. Not once. Not now, not ever. Because had he ever known him, then he would still know him. That's eternal security. Had he ever known him, it would still be knowing him and he'd be in heaven instead of in hell complaining about it. And uh, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And so I use this a lot. It's in my thinking a lot. I use this in discussions a lot because um, I've had occasion where uh, believers are going carnal and leaving the Word of God and drifting into realms of prolonged carnality. And then other believers will have a tendency. Has this ever happened to you? They have a tendency to say, well, I never thought they were really saved to begin with. You know, I was always a little suspicious. I, now it's clear. They were just faking it the whole time. Okay? And I don't do that. I don't do that. I don't go there. All right? Because I stop and I say, you know something? I remember a day when I prayed with that brother. I remember a day when he was bearing good fruit. I remember a day when he was glorifying Jesus Christ. I can testify to the day that he edified me. All right, so you want to say that, that well, he was just faking it the whole time. You say that if you want. But I know the, the ministry I was engaged in at the time and what, what I perceive in, uh, from my perspective. So um, I don't believe that person is going to stand there and the Lord will say, I never knew you because the Lord did know him at that point, still knows him, even though he is out there in the toolies, spiritual toolies, doing, uh, doing those things. And God can bring him back. The prodigal son, even with the pigs, even out there in pig land, living where he was living, was still a son. He never stopped being a son. Ever. 
You cannot lose your salvation no matter how dark you get. All right. So when he says, I never knew you, that's, uh, that's comprehensive, okay? He goes on to say, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So uh, here's what we're dealing with. And this is the context for this, all right? This is the setting for this. And, and so many other things we never think about. Because he's talking about that day, you know, as, as entering the kingdom of heaven and then that day. Many will say to me on that day, verse 22, okay? What day is that? What day is that? Is that a Thursday? What day, what day is that? Many will say to me, on that day. Think about it. What day, because they're not saved, what's going to be the first day that an unbeliever is going to have an opportunity to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, the sovereign judge of the universe, to stand before Him and plead their case for why they should be in heaven, why they should enter into the kingdom. It's the, the great white throne. The great white throne judgment, they're not going to have an opportunity prior to the great white throne judgment to say, Lord, Lord. Ever think about that? And so when they stand at the great white throne judgment, think this through now. When they stand at the great white throne judgment, where have they been prior to that? They've been in hell. They've been in hell for at least a thousand years. At least the millennium. At least the tribulation. At least however much is remaining of the church age. I'm talking about people that die today. Unbelievers that die today. Or unbelievers that died way back when. Who knows? Okay, These could be first century believers. <laughs> or unbelievers. These are all unbelievers. Okay, But in order for them to say, Lord, Lord, they're standing at the great white throne judgment. And in order to stand in the great white throne judgment, they need to be brought out of death and Hades, where they've been prior to the great white throne judgment. And so it's, it's, it's interesting to me, all that time in hell, and their darkened mind is still convincing themselves that this isn't fair, that they're good enough, that how dare he, who does he think he is? It's extraordinary. Their statements uh, not only defy grace and defy truth and defy reality, but um, as we understand it here in time, but also from the perspective of people that have been tormented in hell for whatever length of time that they've been there prior to uh, being brought out of the, uh, for the great white throne judgment. All right. If you have any more questions on that, we can take those on Wednesday night and handle that. But so believers enter the ministry, sometimes for right reasons, sometimes for wrong reasons. An unbeliever will enter a ministry always for the wrong reasons. When we read these stories about the top bishop of the Episcopal Church or the top bishop of the Methodist Church or the top bishop of the whatever, whatever, I, I read those news stories and I, I honestly wonder, are they saved? Are they saved? I, I, I can't see. I, I've I'm not close enough to him to know, but based on what I read, sure doesn't seem like it. All right. I hope they are. I pray they are. But, uh, you know, when they're doing an interview and they're asked about whether they think there's a hell or not, and they say maybe, they say, well, probably, maybe. But if there is, it's empty. That's the, that was the number one Methodist that said that. 
uh, just this week in the in the interview. The I don't know she looks lesbian. I'm not sure, but um, the the female bishop that has obviously has Bible problems because <laughs> anyway. Um, but yeah, so they they obviously they they allow women pastors. They allow homosexual marriage. They allow all these other non-biblical practices. And then when they're asked if there is a hell, say, well, maybe, probably. There probably is, but it's also probably empty because Jesus loves everybody. And Jesus wouldn't want to put anybody in hell. Okay? And so you read these things. You go, are you even saved? Are we reading the same Bible? (laughs) What is this? Okay? What is this? Anyway. In part, I think, um, only because Satan is as diabolical as he is, I don't think that Satan would allow truly regenerate people to advance to the... Well, there'll never be a born-again pope, there'll never be a born-again archbishop or a born-again cardinal or so forth. If there are truly born-again, uh, maybe a parish priest somewhere or somebody on the lower realms of things, um, I don't see Satan allowing them to advance through the through the ranks and structure and getting up into the into the political hierarchy of things. Not at all. Why would Satan allow something like that? Okay. Anyway, that's uh, that's that. So unbelievers will enter the ministry and always for the wrong reasons. We got scads of unbelievers. They go to seminary every year. Why is that? Why is sixty percent of, of one seminary anyway? Why is sixty percent of one seminary homosexual? I'm talking about the students that are enrolled. What is driving those people to put themselves into church positions of authority? Okay. Well, I know why. It's clear. All right. And always for the wrong reasons. Now, in the, uh, the last thing I'll say in introduction, in the trinity of gifts, ministries, and effects, it is the Lord Jesus Christ who leads us in our ministry pursuits. And so 1 Corinthians 12 verse 4 verse 5 and verse 6 you should be familiar with this. I've taught this um, I don't know how many times. My wife tells me I exaggerate so uh, I won't throw a number out there but I've probably taught this 6,000 times. Okay? Because yeah my wife's always telling me that I exaggerate. She's probably told me that a thousand times. <laughs> now, <laughs> gifts, ministries, and effects. And I love this. Uh, this is, the, the poetry is beautiful. The structure is simple. Uh, variety is variety is variety. It's verse 4, verse 5, verse 6. And, and you can see this with your own eyes, you can show this to your neighbor, you can teach this. Varieties of gifts in verse 4, varieties of ministries in verse 5, varieties of effects or workings in verse 6, the same Spirit in verse 4, the same Lord in verse 5, the same God. I take that as the Father in verse 6, who works all things in all persons, all gifts, all ministries. The Father is the one that's at work. He works through gifted believers pursuing ministry. The Father will do the maximum work in a gifted believer pursuing ministry. And that's what we see here. So varieties of gifts but the same Spirit. God the Holy Spirit is the agent the, uh, of the Trinity, the, uh, the member of the Godhead that provides your gift at the moment of salvation and empowers your gift 
Anytime your gift is empowered, anytime you make use of your gift, it is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit for the common good. So as you are, uh, as your gift is, is engaged and as your gift is being expressed, that is the power of the Holy Spirit in and through you. All right? The Holy Spirit provides the giftedness, not only in distributing the gift, but also empowering the gift. Verse 4. So we all have the same Spirit, even though we all have different gifts. We all have the same Holy Spirit that gives the gifts, that empowers the gifts. And then there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. So a ministry is not a gift. A ministry is something different. And it's not the Holy Spirit that's leading in ministry. It's Jesus Christ who's leading in ministry. All right? The Holy Spirit's empowering the gift, but Jesus Christ is leading in ministry. Why is that? Well, because Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Jesus Christ assigns the ministries. Jesus Christ provides the leadership. Jesus Christ is who we're yoked to. Take my yoke upon you, right? And so where he's walking, we need to be walking. Doesn't work too well if you've got two oxen yoked together and one wants to go this way and one wants to go that way. You're yoked together. He says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Take my yoke upon you. And so we are walking with Jesus Christ through the Christian way of life. And he leads us into these ministries. Also, uh, ministries have open doors and closed doors. When a ministry begins, it's an open door. When a, and as it per, uh, proceeds, it remains an open door. But that, those doors don't stay open forever. A door will close. A ministry will conclude. Okay? Gifts don't conclude. Ministries will conclude. And when the door closes, the ministry is concluded. And who is, is it the Holy Spirit that opens doors? No, it's Jesus Christ who opens doors. Revelation says, I open doors no man can shut. I close doors no man can open. And so for all these reasons, we see that Jesus Christ is the leader, provides the leadership in our ministry pursuits. And so we're supposed to take up our cross and follow, not the Holy Spirit, take up our cross and follow Jesus. He leads us in the ministry. So the Holy Spirit provides the gift and empowers the gift. Jesus Christ provides the ministry, opens the door for ministry, leads us through that door for ministry, walks with us in every ministry, closes the door when the ministry is complete. Jesus Christ is the one who leads us in our ministry pursuits. And then finally the Father There are varieties of effects. These are the workings. This is what gets done. And sometimes, too, this becomes a realm of discouragement. Sometimes if we are engaged in ministry, we get um, disappointed that we don't seem to be doing much. We get disappointed that there don't seem to be tangible results that we don't observe because we're so finite and human and temporal and and impatient. We, uh, We don't see what's getting done. When... uh, Ultimately, what's getting done is eternal. And if we're expecting to see it in time, uh, then we may have a lot of disappointments and heartache and, and discouragements between now and then. Okay, But whether we see it or we don't see it is kind of beside the point because the effects are, in, are God's business. The results are God's business. You give the gospel to 500 people and how many get saved and how many reject it? That's God's business. The effects, those are, that's in God's hands. And so the effects, the workings, the accomplishments, the achievements, there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all. Okay? Who works all in all. And uh, just 
keep that expression in mind. We've got some all-in-all teaching and some all-in-all the Son's going to deliver up the kingdom that God would be all-in-all. We've got some other all-in-all expressions coming up in Hebrews. Um, But the all-in-all is is the Father working, okay? The Father is at work. We want to be clear on that. So we have a trinity of gifts, ministries, and effects. And uh, the idea that you're going to have effects when you're not pursuing any kind of ministry or when you don't even know what your gift is or care to know or or, or make use of it in any way, um, that's that's going to limit the effects you're producing, right? It comes in that order for a reason. Gifts, ministries, effects. And so it's Jesus Christ who leads in these ministries, or who should be leading in these ministry pursuits. And that's the thing. I think wrongly motivated crowd is getting in there doing stuff, not being led by the Lord, but being led by their own uh, their own motivations. All right. So now to develop, I want to develop some principles here. Prince, uh, Roman numeral two, if you're keeping an outline, is the development and applications. I'm going to have three broad areas to develop here: A, B, and C. First of all, principles of ministry calling. Principles of ministry calling, and, and like we've done studies on ministries before ministry pursuits and ministry fulfillments, but I'm hoping this time that what we really want to stress is the, the inception of a ministry, the call to a ministry, the, the somebody that's not presently engaged in ministry but thinking about it and may, may be goaded, may be provoked um, for right reasons or wrong reasons to, to get engaged in something uh, for the first time or something you haven't done before. So principles of ministry calling. And uh, we got five of these. And then we're going to look at some illustrations of uh, ministry calling, people that were called to ministry in the, in the Scriptures. We've got great examples. We've got some horrible examples. <laughs> All right. We've got Moses who complained about it for three chapters. Okay. We've, got, um, we've got others, fishermen that went back to fishing. And, and, and we've got other examples of believers called to ministry in the, in the Scripture that uh, will hopefully be a blessing for us. But then there's also, uh, under development C, uh, some dangers and warnings of ministry calling. And uh, some things we want to have our eyes open to. Not, not to keep us from obeying the call, but just to be aware that when you enter into the ministry, there's a bullseye on your back. That uh, when you say, yes, I'll be a deacon, uh, just get ready for conflict. Get ready for testing. Get ready for all kinds of things coming up. All right? And it's, uh, it's to be expected. There's also higher accountability. Uh, let not many of you become teachers, it says. Why? They incur a stricter judgment. And so the, the point of putting that in the Bible is not to keep people from becoming teachers, but to those who do become teachers, to be aware that with this increased responsibility comes increased, increased accountability in those things. All right, so speaking of Hebrews, let's go to Hebrews 5. Let's look at Hebrews 5. And um, take a look at this first opening paragraph here. This is where we're going to glean our first principle. Um, We have got the the great assurance at the end of chapter 4 that we have a great high priest and uh, that's our Savior, and obviously we love Him and what He's done. Uh, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, 
He did so victoriously. He, he lowered himself. He rose again. He ascended. He has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. We are church-age believer priests with a great high priest, and this is there's nothing, there's never been anything like this. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And, and that's a powerful encouragement. That's a great promise. That's a tremendous blessing that uh, we, we can be at that throne of grace anytime we need to, all day, every day. We, uh, there's no reason to leave that throne of grace if we're praying without ceasing. All right, we're just there at all times. And then, so that's what then introduces this concept and then gets expanded now in chapter 5. For every high priest taken among men. So now speaking of high priests, all right, every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Okay? And so we have an illustration here of human priests, illustrations here of, of, the, of Aaron and his sons, the Levitical priesthood, any, uh, any high priest on earth, uh, and, and what they do. And that's an illustration, but again, we're going to go back to Christ and we'll see what he does and how powerful that is. So every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided. Okay? Write your name in there. I wrote my name in there a long time ago. Um, <laughs> you know, raise your hand because that's us. That's, that's all of us. Um, since he himself also is beset with weaknesses. Okay? Now this is a human high priest that could identify with his flock uh, just because, you know, he's a sinner and he, he gets it. All right? By the way, that's why Jesus humbled himself. That's why he identified with us, why he became a man and walked our walk. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. And that's what a human high priest has to do. He first offers his own sacrifice to atone for his own weaknesses, and then he can be an intercessor on behalf of others. Well, um, and so the contrast here with Christ uh, in uh, obviously he doesn't have to offer a sacrifice for himself. He has no sin. He's sinless and he's unique and he's perfect and he can immediately, even though he's identifying with our weaknesses, he is qualified to be the eternal sacrifice for everyone else because he himself does not need a savior. All right. But now the key verses here in between all this is verse 4 and verse 5 that sets forth our first principle of ministry calling. Verse 4 says, no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. All right? Why was Aaron the high priest and not Moses? Why was, uh, because God kept calling Moses, and Moses kept saying, no thanks, and kept saying, I'm not worthy, or I can't do this, or I'm not a good speaker, my brother's a great speaker, and all these complaints. And so we have an ironic high priesthood, not a Mosaic high priesthood. Why? And this is interesting, part of uh, volition, part of motivation, part of God and His overruling will and allowing for an Aaronic high priest and not a Mosaic high priest. All right. 
No one takes the honor to himself. And that's the point. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. But he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Remember that passage? This is the beginning of the humanity of Jesus Christ. This is the Father whose good pleasure is for all the formless to dwell in Christ. And he uh, begat Christ's humanity, infused it upon the person of God the Son. The Son accepted that in the plan of God. This is what they're executing in, uh, in the Father's plan. Just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so this is it. He didn't take the priesthood to himself. He didn't enter ministry in his own volition. He didn't choose to do this. The Father appointed this. And so um, this then is, is, I think, vital as the first of the principles for ministry calling is that we don't call ourselves. We don't call ourselves. Hebrews 5, verses 4 and 5, even as we don't prepare our own works beforehand, Ephesians 2.10, even as we don't set our own race before ourselves. We run with endurance the race God sets before us. Hebrews 12 and verse 1. So we don't call ourselves even as we don't prepare our own works beforehand. That'd be a good trick if we could do it. <laughs> But since it was done before the foundation of the world, uh, we weren't around. All right? We weren't around. And this is, uh, again, the glory of the Father. It's His good pleasure to assign these things in His foreknowledge, in His wisdom, in the glory of His plan. You know, we talk about uh, what we're predestined to and what we're elect to and what we're foreknown to and all these things God has designed. And yet, God designs them, God lays them before us. We retain our own motivation. We respond by faith or we don't respond by faith. We reject what God sets before us in unbelief. And then someone takes our crown. Okay, We're told, let no one take your crown. Enter every door he opens. If he's opened it for you, that's your door. Don't, uh, don't complain that somebody else is better qualified. They may end up doing it. And they just took your crown. All right. Are you familiar? Uh, so we have Hebrews 5, verses 4 and 5 here. And this is it. I think um, the, the warnings that we have in Timothy about not laying hands on a man too hastily, um, we got warnings about uh, uh, preemptive or, or, or uh, premature uh, ministry pursuits in the sense of pride, in the sense of a man that's wrongly motivated. Uh, he doesn't need to be entering into the ministry right now. He needs to continue preparing, continue uh, learning, continue growing. Uh, he needs to be humbled a bit. He needs to serve in some lower capacities before he'll ever be entrusted with greater capacities. All right. Um, if you've got a man that uh, uh, won't teach a Sunday school class because children are beneath him, uh, he wants to teach the adults in the auditorium, well, you're not ready for that yet. Okay, go teach some kids. <laughs> All right. Uh, or won't, uh, won't, you know, we need someone to cover the nursery. Well, I'm not going to do that. I'm a pastor. Really? You're too good for that? All right. Um, there's humility that's needed. And uh, there's demonstrations that, uh, that this man's not ready. Okay. In that way. 
So uh, don't take the honor to yourself. And if you insist on uh, calling yourself, what are you going to do? Ordain yourself? What are you going to do? Uh, <laughs> you know, how, do you, how are you going to do all this? Lay hands on self and uh, enter into the ministry? What do you do? All right. Even as we don't prepare our own works beforehand. Hebrews 2.10. And uh, we should be familiar with this, but it doesn't hurt to look at it again. It's no trouble for me and it's a safeguard for you. Ephesians 2.10, to repeat these things. Repetition is good. Holy Spirit uh, puts it in Scripture for us. And uh, when you see this too, when we talk about the eternal plan of God and the, the scope of this, um, how uh, verse 4, God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead, in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. What does it mean to be saved? It means to be made alive together with Christ. If you're not made alive, you're not saved. Okay, And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ. So an Old Testament saint could claim verse 5, but only New Testament saints, only members of the church and the body of Christ can claim verse 6 raised us up with Him, seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Okay, Because to be baptized in union with Christ requires Christ to be ascended and seated at the Father's right hand and requires the Holy Spirit to be sent down to earth to baptize and seal and indwell the, uh, the body and bride of Jesus Christ. So no Old Testament believer could, uh, could claim verse 6 uh, and really no tribulational or millennial believer can claim or fullness of time believer could claim verse 6. So that in the ages to come, verse 7, in the ages to come, it's not even in the church age that this happens, it's in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now I believe He's doing that today in the church age, but verse 7 isn't talking about the church age. Verse 7 is talking about the ages to come. So if you think He's already now showing His riches in kindness, you're right, He is, but you ain't seen nothing yet, okay? Because what He's going to demonstrate, what He's going to demonstrate is far greater. All we have now is the down payment. All we have now is just the earnest money, the deposit. We have the, 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 the taste, the appetizer of the feast, okay? The feast is still future, and in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So do you see the scope of this passage? It's eternal. It's the eternal plan. It goes from the foundation of the earth. It goes to the new heavens and new earth. It goes to eternity future. The plan of God is overwhelming and comprehensive. For by grace you have been saved through faith that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast for we are His workmanship. We are His craftsmanship. We are His, his product. Remember, who's the one that's at work in us to do the will of His good pleasure? We already saw gifts and ministries, but the effects are the Father's. We are His effects, His workmanship, His work product. Created in Christ Jesus. This is the new creation, Okay? We don't haven't had a new heaven yet. The new earth isn't here yet. But the residents of the new heavens and new earth, we're here already. 
the new creation is preceding the new heavens and the new earth because we're here. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Not just to be saved and do nothing. Not just to get saved and then sit around doing nothing, waiting to go to heaven. No, there are good works prepared beforehand. Not good works to earn salvation, but good works after salvation because now we are saved. Being saved, we are now the new creation created for these works, which God prepared beforehand. That's the key. Which God prepared beforehand. When was the beforehand? Okay. Yesterday? (laughs) You know, does God wing it? Is God just right there uh, scrambling, scraping together something on a Saturday night that he can preach on a Sunday morning? Is he, is he, is he preparing the good works just that, that quickly in advance? No. Prepared beforehand is prepared beforehand. And in, in all these Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3, we're talking before the foundation of the earth. All right? Which God has prepared beforehand. It's been in the plan of God back to the divine decrees. So that we should, we would, we might. Subjunctive mood, okay? Subjunctive mood, not the indicative mood, not the statement of fact, not the statement of reality. See, God prepared them, but who does the walking? We do. I do. You do. Okay? Or we don't. Okay? The works are prepared so that we do. That's the purpose clause, okay? But, but in communicating a purpose clause and in communicating a potential, not a reality, but a potential, it is prepared so that you can. It is prepared so that you would. It is prepared so that you should. It is prepared so that you might or might not. But whether you do or you don't is your choice. You can't blame God for not walking because he prepared those works. He prepared you. He prepared your giftedness. He prepared your ministry. All of this. God has done it. He saved you. He sent his son. All these things. And he's laid a race before you. Are you going to run with the nerds? The race that's set before you. Are you going to reach forward that you might lay hold of that for which also you were laid hold of by Christ Jesus? You either will or you won't. And that's your choice. Okay? we make choices and we face consequences. As we sow, so we reap. We want to be clear on this. We do not prepare our own works beforehand. God prepares our works beforehand. And so the idea that, that Christ didn't claim to be a high priest, that, any, that Paul didn't claim to be an apostle, he was called. He didn't call himself. I didn't call myself as pastor. I didn't make myself pastor. All right. See, if it was left up to us, we'd get it all wrong. God chooses the things that are not that He might nullify the things that are. We would look at us and whatever it is we're impressed by, we'd say, oh, well, I must, that must be how I'm going to serve Jesus. See, we might, uh, in whatever, whatever we think we can do for Him, whatever we think God will be impressed with, because we're impressed with it, uh, that, hey, we can do this. <laughs> and, hey, we're serving you. And then, how is that any different than the Lord, Lord crowd we were looking at earlier? Okay. Or Cain, bringing his vegetables. Saying, here you go, Lord. 
I'm impressed. Look what I've done. Aren't I great? No, God calls us. We don't call ourselves. We don't prepare our own works beforehand. We don't set our own race before ourselves, Hebrews 12. Okay? So if we have the context here, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And uh, like I say, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, it's all eternal. In case you're missing it, um, chapter 3 and verse 11 says it's an eternal purpose. In accordance with the eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, you know, how do you get around that? It's an eternal purpose. Eternal means it precedes time, it transcends time, it's throughout time, it will continue on after time is no more. It was commenced at the Eternal Life Conference before the foundation of the world. All right, so um, Hebrews 12, running with endurance the race that's set before us. Following after chapter 11, again, we've got a similar principle to what we saw um, earlier. Um, we've got a great witness, cloud of witnesses there in chapter 11, the hall of fame of Old Testament believers, Old Testament faith. Verse 12, uh, 1 of chapter 12 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance. Let us. Okay? Now this is the author including himself. It's a way to give a command, but instead of giving the command in the second person, you guys go do this. All right? It's in the first person, plural. Let us go do this. Okay? So it's, a, it's an exhortation, but it's, uh, it's, it's uh, cohortative. Okay? It's the author includes himself. And so it's not second person, you guys, it's first person, us. Let us all do this. Let us lay aside every encumbrance. Let us, and the sin, which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance. The race that is set before us. Notice, we don't set the race. We run, we lay aside encumbrances, we lay aside sin, and we run. There's a lot that we do, or not. Okay? But that's up to us and what we choose to do or not. But God, regardless of what we choose to do or not, God has put that course there. He laid that course there because that's part of the, the, what we saw in Ephesians. The good works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, um, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. And that's what He did. That's how He endured the cross, despised the shame, was seated at the right hand of God. All right, so that's our first point. We do not call ourselves, even as we don't prepare our own works beforehand or set our own race before ourselves. We've got five of these all together, but I'm out of time. Wednesday night we'll come back. We'll see um, ministry callings may uh, entail a departure from temporal work or may require a bivocational testing. He may take you out of the workforce. He may take you out of the workaday world. Uh, as I left the workforce on Christmas Eve of 1999, my last shift of secular employment was uh, Christmas Eve. And uh, after midnight, uh, my sergeant said, Merry Christmas, and uh, you don't have to stay till 7, you can go home now. And uh, so <laughs> called Sharon, said, don't shoot me, I'm coming home. And uh, uh, I'm coming home before 7 a.m. 
<laughs> and uh, um, that was it. I have not uh, worked a secular job since uh, Christmas Eve of, of 1999. And God may do that. And, and God is so gracious when He does that. But we live in the intensified stage of angelic conflict and Austin Bible Church is the exception to the rule. How many pastors are supported full-time by their flocks? And how many are bivocational? Or their wife works? Or they're living off a military pension? Or there's something else? They've got uh, some other income coming in from some other sources. All right, Ralph had farm income that sustained him and Dorothy so often because the church wasn't doing it. All right. We'll deal with this Wednesday night. Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your faithfulness. I, I thank you for these principles of ministry calling. We need to be aware of them. If we're being called, we need to be aware of them, Father, and accept them for what they are. And uh, we can't stick our head in the sand and deny this is the way it is because this is how you designed it. Now, Father, uh, open our eyes to these beautiful, powerful truths. Equip us, Father, to embrace what you've called for us to do. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.